0: Faithful believers throughout church history have all, well maybe not all, but there have been significant differences of opinion, differences of conviction when it comes to the Lord's return. The debate about the details sometimes can be confusing and there seem to be good arguments made by many great people, leads too many people to be unsettled. And it leaves us sometimes with a lack of clarity on the events regarding Christ's return. And if there is a lack of clarity regarding what God has revealed about the Lord's return, then it becomes very easy then to misinterpret what's going on around us. Significant biblical argumentation can be found for a lot of, if not most of, the serious convictions about the return of Jesus and I'm not proposing that this series of sermons that we're about to embark on in talking about the Lord's return is going to settle the case. I simply want to, with you, look to unfold what is in front of us as best we can to look into the scriptures and see and how they're related to other passages in the Bible and see if we can discern what the Lord has revealed here in this text and how it should begin to shape us and what we think about the coming of the Lord and even the way that we respond in our life in regard to the coming of the Lord. I'm, I am concerned that there have been so many different ideas about the coming of the Lord that we become a people who are not now expectant. That will affect your zeal and sanctification. The scriptures tell us that an expectancy of the Lord's return, it encourages us in evangelism, it encourages us in sanctification, becoming more and more like the Lord, expecting the Lord is a part of our sanctifying process. So I simply want to unfold what we find in the passage and what I think is a faithful understanding of the Scriptures that should create some clarity. And thus, if it's clear, it should create then stability. I think that we should look and the world should look at the lives of Christians and see some of the most stable, confident lives because we know what is coming. First and 2 Thessalonians are critical books in terms of the conversations about the return of Jesus. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, the coming of the Lord, the return of the Lord is mentioned at the end of every single chapter in the first four chapters of the book. The latter part of chapter four in 1 Thessalonians and the first half of, the, of chapter five are all about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come to 2 Thessalonians Virtually every chapter here, all three chapters are all about the return of Christ. We've been looking at chapter one for some time. Chapter two will all be devoted to this idea of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even the events of chapter three where some are not going to work and some are not coming to church is related to the misunderstanding that some have had about the return of the Lord Jesus. So two books Right in the middle of the New Testament, early books in the life of the the church devoted to, I think we could safely say, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ make this an important issue. It's something that we need to think about. We need to think as clear as we can about these details and try to unfold them well. We know that this first century fledgling church in Thessalonica was enduring a significant amount of persecution and personal suffering. We've talked about that over the last number of weeks. After Paul had come and he had preached the gospel, planted the church, was run out of that area because of persecution, he was greatly concerned about whether or not these Christians would remain in the faith. In fact, he told them suffering was coming, agitation was coming, he was going to face it, they were going to face it, and they needed to expect that, and indeed it did come. When we finished our study not not that long ago, a few weeks ago of chapter one, we noted that it was the return of Jesus Christ that would actually bring about God's vengeance of all Christian suffering through all of time. And that fact should cause us to keep growing in the way that we trust Christ and we have faith in him and knowing that God's vengeance will come back and repay all Christian suffering should help us to love one another in the here and now God will not overlook any suffering of any Christian in any age he will satisfy his justice when he comes in vengeance now when we come to chapter 2 and as I've said the entire chapter is devoted to addressing what has become an unsettling issue for the Thessalonians an unsettling issue about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 2. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect, what is the issue with them? That the day of the Lord has come. Someone has introduced to this church a deceptive, according to verse 3, it's deceptive, a deceptive and unsettling false idea that all of the suffering that the Thessalonians were going through in that present time was evidence that the day of the Lord had come, that they were in the day of the Lord. You've seen this kind of thing happen before. If you've lived long enough, you've seen it over and over again. World events, regional disasters have a tendency to make us think apocalyptically, doesn't it? We saw it in the 1980s with the rise of Russia and the Cold War and the predictions that Mikhail Gorbachev and his funny red thing on his head was somehow the mark of the beast. I have books in my library. I just keep them just to pull them out every now and then uh, to remember some of that. The Iraq War... You remember the Iraq War and all of the books that were coming out about the revival of ancient Babylon and the end times. 9-11 brought a lot of that out. And if you pay close attention, some of the worst things that we've seen in cult groups over time have been all stirred up about people being shaken about the end of the world. Jim Jones and the people's temple. The Branch Davidians. Heaven's Gate. Hundreds of people taking their own life all because of eschatology and the lack of clarity around it. It does affect a number of people. I remember studying a number of years ago the People's Temple in Jim Jones where almost a thousand people took their life. A thousand people. People's Temple in San Francisco was was running several thousand people every week and a thousand people joined them in Guyana to live there because of an impending view of the coming of the Lord. It was shaking them. So this thing that's going on in Thessalonica, we've seen things like this in our own world and it does have to do with a lack of clarity of expectation and living in a false kind of expectation in terms of the coming of the Lord. Global wars, pursuits of genocide, famines, violent, destructive riots, oppressive governments, we look at the rejection of biblical values across our world, not just across American culture, but across the world. There's civic religious institutions that are arising with alternative viewpoints, natural disasters, global pandemics, rising totalitarianism. It makes a lot of people start saying, the Lord has to come soon. Certainly the Lord will come soon. And we're always looking at how are we to interpret all the things going on around us in light of what the Bible reveals regarding the coming of Christ. How do we interpret current events in light of Christ's return? How can we know and how should we understand what's going on around us in light of what the scriptures say about the coming of Christ? That's the essential issue going on in In 2 Thessalonians 2, it is a chapter written to provide clarity about the current events that the Thessalonians are going through in light of the coming of Christ. Now let me give you just a brief roadmap of how the chapter calls for and provides some clarity about the return of Jesus, just a roadmap of where we're going to go over the next number of weeks. There are, as we could say here, four points of clarification that Paul's gonna make throughout the chapter. I'm not gonna put these on the screen right now. You have to come every week to get them, all right? See what I'm doing there? But there's really four parts to the chapter. It's really him giving four points of clarification about the coming day of the Lord and how they should see their their current events and and likewise how we should interpret current events in light of what the Bible reveals about the coming of, of Christ. Now in the first two verses, Paul's going to clarify the events of Jesus' return. In fact, he's going to say you have to clarify these events that are related to the coming of Christ and that's what we're going to try to do this morning. In verses 3 through 12, he wants to clarify the evidence that reveals the day of the Lord and he's going to give out evidence that actually shows this is how you know that the day of the Lord has, has come and it's going to have a lot to do with someone he refers to as the man of lawlessness and the man of lawlessness is a man who comes and has supernatural deceptive abilities and it will be that man that actually ushers in the visible return of Christ to the earth. And he says, you know this isn't the day of the Lord right now because of this evidence. And he will unpack that evidence in verses 3 through 12. In verses 13 to 14, Paul then wants to clarify how our salvation then relates to the day of the Lord or how our salvation relates to the coming judgment of God. And he's going to unpack that in verses 13 and 14. And the last part of this chapter in verses 15 to 17, Paul will clarify our response to current events in light of the return of Christ. What then should be our response, verses 15 to 17? So this morning, we're gonna begin with the first of these four points of clarification and we want to, to really just provide some clarity about the events of Jesus' return. That's what these two verses do They address different issues involved in Jesus' return that help us clarify what's going on around us currently in light of what will happen when the Lord returns. So what are these issues that we need to settle? What are these issues about the coming of Christ that we need to have in our mind so that we can properly see what's going on around us in light of the coming of Christ? Well, Paul gives us here in these verses three issues that I want to draw out for us. Three issues that bring clarity about Jesus' return in light of current events. We're going to draw them out of these two verses. We're going to talk about them. What Paul does in verses one and two is he addresses the situation that was at hand for the Thessalonians. And from that, we're going to pull from there. That means there's at least three issues that we need to clarify. Let's see if we can do that together. The first one comes up really in the whole of verses 1 and 2, and we'll see a little bit of it in verse 8. But I I just want to paint the picture for you as Paul is painting the picture here. We need to define the elements involved in Jesus' return. If you want clarity, you've got to define the elements involved in Jesus' return. I want you to see what Paul does as he begins in verse 1. And what he mentions in verse 2 and how it connects to other parts of the chapter that we'll see. There's a number of events involved in Jesus' return. It begins in verse 1 and he says, Now we request you, brethren. I think that's Paul's gentleness here. When people are shaking, unsettled, They're not sure what's going on. He doesn't come in command here. He comes in a gentle word of request. Now this is a normal way that the Apostle Paul would shift from one section of of his letter to a new section of his letter and yet it's still related to what came before. They have much agitation that's going on among them and Paul says in chapter 1, wait for the Lord to come in vengeance. He will deal with this. Now... Now, I want to stop and I want to gently request of you as you're waiting for the Lord to come, I want to request of you with regard to the coming of our Lord that you not live a shaken kind of life. I'm calmly asking you, Paul is saying here, to be calm. Be calm. Now, there's a number of elements of the Lord's return that he describes here. I want to point them out to you. There's four that we're going to look at, four different elements. First is what I refer to as the coming. The coming. We request you, brethren, with regard to do you see the word, the phrase, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? We've talked about this before. Let me remind you just for a moment what this word coming or it's the Greek word parousia. You might see that as you read some commentaries or you you look through different things that you're reading about the return of Christ. It's the word parousia. It's a common term that means coming, the coming or the presence It can be a very general and inclusive term of many different elements connected to the return of Jesus. It's like a a one-word catch-all term that refers to the whole of the coming of the Lord. Even here, you can see it. I want to talk to you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and, here's another element, our gathering to him. So you can see he's comparing the coming to the gathering He'll also compare it to the day of the Lord in verse 2 and even the appearance of his coming. There's that term again in verse 8. In the Thessalonian letters, this same word, parousia, for coming, refers to a number of different things. Let me just give you a few of them. In chapter 2, verse 19 in 1 Thessalonians The word parousia refers to the Thessalonians being spiritually complete, being found absolutely complete at the parousia, the coming of the Lord Jesus. In chapter three, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians, the word coming describes Jesus establishing the Thessalonians as blameless in the presence of the Father, as if it were in heaven. So the coming is you being complete, Or it could be you in the presence of God the Father in heaven being found complete. In chapter 4 verse 15 this word parousia is referred to the gathering of believers to be with the Lord in the clouds. Which the clouds are a normal biblical phrase to refer to heaven. That's connected to the coming In chapter 5, verse 23, Paul's prayer that the Thessalonians will be found blameless at the coming of the Lord uses this same term, parousia. It's a general term that encompasses all the different events related to the Lord's return. The gathering of believers into the air, that's the coming of the Lord. The presentation of believers as complete before the Father, that's connected to the presence, the coming of the Lord. The day of the Lord, when he comes in wrath on the earth, that's connected to the coming of the Lord. The appearing of the Lord with his saints to bring the wrath of God to the earth and the kingdom of God. That's connected to the, pres- the coming of the Lord. All of those things are. The coming of the Lord, when you read it, it's a general term, catch-all term, that refers to many different events. I think that's precisely what he's doing here in this text when he starts mentioning a few other elements. Let me show them to you. There's a second element, a second issue that you find in defining the events around the coming of the Lord. It's the gathering, the gathering. He wants to talk to them about the coming of our Lord and our gathering together to him. Now at this point, I'm gonna pause just for a minute and I'm gonna just ask you to do something with me. I'm going to ask you to think with me a moment, okay? We're going to dive into the minutiae of Greek grammar. Are you ready? I know some of you, that's, that will unsettle you worse than the coming of the Lord will. <laughs> that, that will shake you and send you into a tailspin. But I, just walk with me through this because I want to show you what I believe Paul is emphasizing here so we see it correctly. If you read this just in normal English, you'd say the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together, you might assume that those are two unrelated things, the coming and our gathering. That word and could make you think this is something completely distinct, but it's not completely distinct. In fact, in Greek grammar, there is what is often referred to as Granville Sharp's rule. Some of you out there who have studied Greek, you know this. And if you, some of you are quickly running to your your Greek Testament, right? Maybe one of you is running to your Greek Testament to see if you can see it. But this is is a rule in Greek. And I want to explain a little bit to you because we see something like it happening here in this very section. It's where two nouns like the word coming or the word gathering, are connected by the word and, and yet they are both governed by one definite article, the word the. So we see that here. The, gathering, and coming, connected together. And Granville Sharp's rule says, when you see this construction, then what the author is saying here is that these two terms are related to each other. In fact, they could be equal to each other. It could be the coming and the gathering are the same thing if both of the nouns are not impersonal, they have to be personal nouns, or if they are uh, plural nouns or proper names. So if you have proper names... If you have a plural noun, if you have an impersonal noun, then Granville Sharp's rule does not apply here. So I know that that's some grammar, but just see if we can get this for a moment. For these two things to be equal to each other, neither can be impersonal, that means they're not referring to a person, or plural, or proper names. Let me give you an example of that. In Ephesians 6:21 we can find a Granville Sharp rule where there's a description of a guy named Tychicus and Paul describes Tychicus as the beloved brother and faithful servant. There's one definite article, the, controlling the personal terms brother and servant. Those refer to people, not events. They're singular, brother and servant, so it means here the brother is the servant. The brother and the servant are equal. There's another significant one in the Bible where this really comes out, and that's Titus 2.13. You can just jot it down. Where Paul describes our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a Granville Sharp rule. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's one article, the God, and it controls both nouns, God and Savior. God is not a proper name in Greek, It's a term, a personal term. God and Savior, both of them are personal terms. They're not referring to events, but persons. And so God and Savior are equated with each other. That's a true Granville Sharp rule. So you kind of see how that's going. So do we have that here? Do we have that here? Here is one, two nouns connected by one article, the the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering. Both of them are singular. They are connected by and and with the definite article. But they're not personal, are they? They're describing events, not people. So this is not a true Granville Sharp's rule here. You say, so what's the big deal? While they're not the same, This is important. The coming is not equal to the gathering. But one is related to the other. One is a subset of the other. One is an an aspect of the other. The coming is the overarching idea and the gathering is one element of that coming. So I was telling you a moment ago that the coming is a general catch-all phrase. And the grammar that Paul uses here, he explicitly then says the gathering is not the same thing as the coming, but it's one aspect of the coming. It's related, but it's not equal to. Does that make sense to you? If you raise your hand, class, if there's anybody here that doesn't understand. Dan's like a little bit. All right, meet me afterwards, Dan. We'll go through it together. So that's significant because the coming is, is a big term, the gathering is a subset term underneath that. In light of what we learn in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, that describes the snatching away of the church, it talks about the gathering of the believers to the Lord in the air. We likely have a reference here to what Paul has already described for them back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the gathering, the catching away to be with the Lord in the air that's connected to the general idea of His coming. There's a different term here that, that is used here. It's not the snatching away. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the snatching away is there to, to describe something that is a violent catching of, of people away to rescue them from all of their turmoil. Here, it's another term to emphasize the being with the Lord. We're gathered together with the Lord. So something is going on in this church, in Thessalonica, where they're confused about this idea of the gathering of the church that happens underneath the general coming of the Lord. And what is that? How does the gathering relate to another, a third term that we find here that describes the events of the Lord's coming? The third term is the day of the Lord the day of the Lord. So we see Christ coming, the general term, a subset term, the gathering together. And then notice verse two. This is in reference to the coming of the Lord, but it seems to be distinct from the gathering. They are shaken because someone is telling them that the day of the Lord has come. That they are now in the day of the Lord and that is causing them no small amount of grief. Well, what is the day of the Lord? Well, I would encourage you to go back to our study of 1 Thessalonians 5, where we went into a lengthy detail, but the day of the Lord is an Old Testament term that refers to a number of significant events that unfold During the period of the Lord's return, where God pours out his judgment on the earth. And there's many different events associated with the day of the Lord. It's one subset, again, of the coming of the Lord. It includes the judgment of all of the nations, the discipline and the restoration of Israel, the vindication of any saints who come to faith in Christ during this time, the destruction of the Antichrist. That's what we're going to see when we look at it in detail in chapter 2. The establishment of Jesus' kingdom on the earth. All of those things are referring to the day of the Lord. It's not just one single 24-hour period. It's many different events that happen over a period of time. So what's going on in the church in Thessalonica? Paul says, I need to talk to you about the coming of the Lord, particularly within the coming of the Lord, the gathering, and how does that relate to Someone in your midst who is telling you that the day of the Lord has come. And that has unsettled you. You are believing one thing about the gathering of the Lord that seems to be different than what Paul has taught. And yet, from what we learn here, maybe even is expressed as if it comes with the authority of the Apostle Paul and it is unsettling you. Because if we're in the day of the Lord, then how does that then relate to? The gathering that's the issue now I know some of you at this point are saying those are some really weird people none of that bothers me right you're the pan millennialist it'll just all pan out doesn't matter what these issues are it'll just all kind of work together but if you were taught by an apostle one thing and then someone else another teacher comes in and begins to teach you something different than that apostle and it has present real world effect like this is the day of the Lord then what does that mean about our salvation what does that mean about the gathering what does that mean about what we're going through right now what is that saying about our own spiritual condition what is that saying about those who have departed before us remember we saw that in first Thessalonians 4 that would be very unsettling so how should we make sense of all of this so there is the coming there is the gathering, which is connected to but distinct from the coming. There is the day of the Lord that's a part of the coming, but it's a specific part of the coming. And there's one more it's the appearing. Look at verse 8 just for a moment. The appearing, verse 8. That lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end. He's talking about the man of lawlessness who is to come, and the Lord will bring him to an end by what means? By the appearance of his parousia, the appearance of his coming. Here's a fourth term connected to the parousia, the coming. Coming is general, gathering is a subset, the day of the Lord's another subset, and here you have another subset, the appearing this aspect of it, what is the appearing, the epiphaneia? this is the actual visible return of the Lord Jesus to the earth to finalize judgment and establish his kingdom. It's used that way in a number of passages in the New Testament, First Timothy 6, 14, Second Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 6.14, 2 Timothy 4.1. 2 Timothy 4:8, Titus 2:13, other references that talk about the actual appearance of the Lord when he actually steps foot. He's not in the air, he's not in the clouds, he actually comes back and he comes to the earth. That's the appearance. And this appearance will destroy the man of lawlessness who is in the day of the Lord. So the appearing is not the gathering of believers. But it is the return of Jesus with the believers. The appearing is not the day of the Lord, it's the finality of that day. So, look at what we have in this passage thus far. We have a description of the coming of Jesus, a general term that talks about the era of his return that includes three different elements the initial gathering, the day of the Lord, and the final appearance. In fact, I think if you looked at the arrangement of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and the discussion that it suggests that the gathering is first and then the day of the Lord. What does Paul talk about in 1st Thessalonians 4:13 to 18? The gathering. What does he talk about in chapter 5 next? The day of the Lord. Here he describes the gathering and he distinguishes it from the day of the Lord, which is the coming of the wrath of God on the earth. They're distinguished. There's some issue going on here with their present persecutions and their understanding of the gathering that is to take place and what their expectation of is of the day of the Lord and the appearance of Christ. So, if you don't have those distinctions and definitions in your mind, and if you conflate them all into one thing, one event, how then do you interpret what's going on and what your expectation is of them? Now that's just the first of these issues that we want to look at when we're talking about trying to bring some clarity to this issue of the coming of Christ, especially in relationship to current events. Let's look at a second issue addressed here that helps bring some clarity about Jesus' return. Secondly, we need to discern the timing related to Jesus' return. Discern the timing related to Jesus' return. It is here that I'm gonna give you the date and the hour. No, I'm not really. I don't know why you laughed. Because no one knows, right? So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, okay, what day is he coming back and what hour and listen, there, there have been so many people who have, have, have tried this. So many have have tried it. I mean, I, I remember, and I think I've told you about the guy who wouldn't come to our wedding. And he said no to the invitation to come to Kelly and my wedding because he had figured out the timing of the Lord's return and that it was going to be right before our wedding. So he said, no, I can't come. And I thought, well, you should come anyway, you know, just come anyway. Matter of fact, uh, in the time that he was in our church in California, he gave me no less than five different dates during that time. And I, I remember talking to him, he's in heaven now, so he knows the truth, right? <laughs> I remember talking to him, it's like, Peter, when are you going to tap out on this? Just give up. You know, you've got it wrong how many times? And we got married, did you see? She's in our church now. It was real. Now, my friends always told me I was bachelor to the rapture. And I never was going to get married, but they were wrong too. So they needed to study this. But we do need to talk about the timing. And what we mean by the timing is, what's the relationship of these events to each other? Can we discern that? So there there is a problem in this church. They're shaken because of this issue of timing. And it is a timing issue. Do you see it at the end of verse 2? They're being told that the day of the Lord, notice the timing, has come. It's a perfect tense verb in the Greek, meaning it has started sometime in the past and it continues up to this very moment. So all of the suffering that you've been going through, this is the day of the Lord. It has come. But notice it is a timing issue because if you go into verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come. Unless the apostasy comes first. That's a timing issue, isn't it? You don't have the day of the Lord unless you first have the apostasy and with the apostasy, the revealing of the man of lawlessness. And you say, what is that? That is next week. All right? That's next week. But this is a timing issue. They're confused about the gathering and someone has told them that you're now in the day of the Lord. And Paul says, no, you're not in the day of the Lord. Now, we're not told the precise problem that is shaking them in regard to all of this. We know it has to do with timing. And furthermore, the source of this false teaching is claiming to have the very authority of the Apostle Paul, as if it were sanctioned by Paul. And this is shaking them because it obviously is different than what they had been told originally. And we know that because Paul will tell them in verse 15, just go back to what I taught you originally. So what did Paul teach about the gathering and the coming of the day of the Lord and the unleashing of God's wrath and the appearing of Christ and how all of those things relate to each other? Well, think through this if Paul had originally taught them that the gathering of the Lord was something that would happen after the day of the Lord was finished, that the gathering would happen after the period of God's wrath when Christ came down, that he would gather them up after the day, if that is what he taught them and they were being told they are in the day of the Lord, that would likely not shake them but actually excite them. Because what would they know? Oh, if this is the day of the Lord and it seems to be coming from the Apostle Paul, then what's next? Our rescue. Where he's going to come back. So this is not something that we shouldn't expect. If this is the day of the Lord, then hallelujah. This is about to all come to fruition. But what if Paul had taught them that the coming of the Lord will begin with the gathering of believers to himself rescuing them from the wrath of God because they were not destined for wrath and they would be saved from wrath because they were not the people connected to God's wrath and that he would bring them back to the earth with the Lord at the conclusion of the day of the Lord. If that's what Paul said, you're first going to be gathered, then the day of the Lord is going to come and wrath is going to come and then the Lord will bring you back to the earth in the finality of it all. If someone came back into the church and began to say, Oh, you're in the day of the Lord, this is all this suffering you're going through, this is God's wrath. And by the way, I have Paul's authority behind me on this, you would be shaken, you would be disturbed. You would say wait a minute this doesn't seem to be what we were told and what does that then say about me and my salvation and my spiritual state because that was reserved for those who are on the earth who were opposing God not for those who believe in God you would be shaken. It would contradict Paul. Maybe it was something that suggests that they were not going to be rescued from the period of God's wrath. Maybe what Paul taught was they misunderstood it or maybe it's now changed it's incorrect what if we're in the day of God's judgment now there's a number of questions that might come up if that is what Paul taught if Paul had taught that the gathering of believers was before the day of the Lord the day of God's wrath Why didn't he just dispel the false teaching by saying it can't be the day of the Lord right now because I told you already, you're going to be gathered up. And he doesn't say that here. If he wanted to just dismiss, why didn't he just say that? Well, I think because the whole issue is about the gathering. He says that in verse 1. And where does it fit with this? If Paul just said, no, no, you're going to be gathered first, yet somebody else is saying, no, you're going to be gathered after. You don't settle the issue. So he doesn't dispel that idea by just saying, no, you're going to be gathered first. He does come back in verse 15 and says, just believe what I told you in the beginning. Maybe there was some kind of false teaching going on that affirmed Paul saying that, yes, there will be a gathering. And one commentator, Greg Beale, suggested that it's very possible that the false teacher was saying this gathering has already taken place that it was a spiritual gathering and that you shouldn't expect a literal gathering, you shouldn't expect a literal resurrection, kind of like the Corinthians. They started buying into this idea there's no physical resurrection, it's all spiritual, it's just your salvation, so you shouldn't expect it. Maybe that's what someone has said about the gathering of the Lord, we don't know for sure. Could have just been someone reshaping this or contradicting Paul. Paul said this, but now the Spirit says this. And Paul affirms us now. Now, we might also ask the question, if Paul really did believe that the rapture would occur before the day of the Lord, why would he tell them about all these kinds of details that are going to happen in the day of the Lord when they would not even be there? Well, I think it should be obvious. What are they doing with what's happening in their life right now? They're misinterpreting what's going on. It would help if they knew what was going to happen in the day of the Lord. That way they would not misinterpret their present events as being future events. That's the whole problem. They think their suffering is the eschatological coming of the wrath of God because someone has told them that. And Paul says it can't be that because here's what's going to happen in the future and if this is what's going to happen in the future that's not what's going on right now. So, if they want to have clarity about the coming of Jesus they need to understand what the coming is. The coming and the gathering, the day of the Lord and the appearing. And they need to understand some of the Timing of how they relate to each other. And I think it's not, it's not a clear-cut, slam-shut case, but I do believe that the, the breadcrumbs that you follow lead you to the conclusion that the gathering of God's people rescued from the earth, from the wrath of God happens. Then the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath appears, and it's finalized with the appearing of Christ when he brings his kingdom back to the earth and he comes back with the saints to rule with him that's the timing if that's the timing what does that do for you seeing everything that's going on what you see is there's a sovereign God who is working through all of the machinery and mechanics of all the events that are going on and he's putting everything in place isn't he for his final judgment to come it should not disturb you it should concern you it it doesn't need to please you but you shouldn't get shaken when you see the whole world starting to redefine God's definition of marriage what should we do well don't flip out that's not going to help anybody see the power of the gospel all the public school system has gone well don't flip out over it Don't make a commune in the wilderness and pull everybody out there and live apart from the world. Don't go to some extreme kind of fear. Be settled. That's actually the third issue that needs to be in their mind. You have to understand the terminology. You need to see their relationship with one another. But third, develop stability Produced from Jesus' return, develops the stability that is produced from the return of Jesus. How does that happen? Let me make a couple of suggestions. First, you need to rest your mind in the scriptures. Just rest your mind in the scriptures. You know what it is to rest your mind in the scriptures? Be at peace with what God says. Just be at peace with it. Where do I get that in this passage? Notice verse 2 that you not be quickly shaken. That's earthquake terminology. That word, quickly shaken, or those two terms there, to be easily shaken. The word shaken is sometimes used in regard to an earthquake or some kind of upheaval in the atmosphere. Don't be so easily turned over from your composure, or literally from your mind. That's interesting to me. If you are a person who lives on the edge of fear over all of the issues that are going on in our society, It has to do with the way you're processing your thinking about them, right? We say this often. What you feel is connected to what you think. But what you think has to be tied to what you know to be true. Notice, you're thinking about the events going on around you and the day of the Lord is causing you to live in fear and be unsettled. You're living on edge. You're shaking all the time because you don't know what to do with what's going on around you. Settle your mind in what God has revealed. But but I don't know all of the details, but what has he said? If the next thing on the timeline is for the believers to be caught away, does that mean that you won't go through persecution no you will all who desire to live a godly life in christ will be persecuted that but that's a promise dear friends you will be persecuted you will go through suffering there will be heartache we live in a sinful world our bodies feel it the world sees it society is shaped by sin so we're going to feel the effects of that so just because We would teach that the Lord is going to gather the believers. That that shouldn't bother you. We, We will go through suffering, but that suffering is not the wrath of God. That suffering is not the judgment period of God on the nations. So when he catches his people, if that's the next thing to expect, that he's going to catch you together to be with him and save you from the coming wrath, what are you worried about? What are you concerned about? Why would you live an unsettled life when, when you know the Lord will rescue his people? Trust him. Settle your mind with what the scriptures teach. Secondly, you need to reject contrary revelation. You need to settle your mind in the scriptures, but then you need to reject contrary revelation. And you see this idea in verse two again. What was quickly shaking them from their composure in their thinking? They were being disturbed, alarmed is the word. They were living in a kind of alarmed fear by, listen to this, a spirit or a message or a letter as through us, not from, it's not the Greek term from, it is the Greek word through, through us, as if it were by our authority. What is he referring to here? Well, a spirit is likely some kind of ecstatic speech. It's a revealing from the spirit, a new revelation that comes from the spirit to a person in the assembly. It would be as if someone stood up and says, I have a word from God. You ever heard of anybody doing that? I've got a word from God. And you're saying, okay, well, what page do we turn to in the Bible? And they're saying, no, 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 this is not in the Bible. This is is a new word from God. This is a fresh revelation from the Lord. This is a prophetic statement from the Lord. And he's saying there are people who who might come and say this is from the Holy Spirit. So, So it has equal authority. It's from God. You remember what Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians 5. You shouldn't despise prophetic utterances but what should you do with them? Examine them all very carefully. Examine them carefully. So maybe this was a so-called spirit-inspired word or a message. What does that mean? A sermon. A sermon. One of the teachers got up and they began to give a sermon. And in that sermon, they're beginning to say, here's why I think you're in the day of the Lord. Now, I wasted some time this week. It will shock you. But I I just was reminding myself of a number of the messages of some of the false leaders in cult groups that were talking about the era of God's wrath and was listening to a number of their messages and they were all saying something very similar, trying to prove that you are now in the period of God's judgment. That's why we have to flee to Guyana. That's why we need to drink this substance and, and leave this earth and be carried away by a comet or on and on and on because someone was giving a sermon you are you are the elect just this group of us and you, we are the people and the whole world is now breaching the doors of our of our commune and so we've got to escape all of this this is common a persuasive preacher or i've heard a lot of that would have a similar kind of view that I would have in terms of the timing of the events of the Lord and yet they're constantly taking our newspaper and they're taking all of the events and they're saying, this event is this issue in the scripture. Have you seen any of that? I've, I've heard some of that. This is that and I'm thinking, well, I don't think it is. It doesn't even really fit your theological viewpoint to begin with. There seems to be some confusion there. But that would be the idea. Either a spirit-inspired message or a sermon or, Paul says, a letter as if through us, meaning by our authority. I'm not convinced that he's referring to some kind of forged letter that had Paul's name at the end of it, but someone who had written the letter and saying, Paul has given us this. Paul and his authority is behind this. Now, Paul will at the end of this letter in chapter three, verse 17, say, I've got a distinguishing mark here so you can know if it's by my authority or not. But someone has written a letter to them. Not saying they are Paul, but they at least have Paul's authority. And they're saying the day of the Lord has come. And Paul is saying, you don't need to be shaken by any of that. And friends, I I just want to remind you, I want to call you to remember this. When someone comes and says, I have a new word from God, I think it's appropriate for you to be suspicious. How will you know this is a word from God? Listen, if it... If it providentially is something they've just come to a conclusion that seems to be right and in, in concert with the scriptures, you can say, well, the Lord has maybe illumined your understanding to understand something like this, but let's not call it a new spirit inspired word. There's a difference between illumination and revelation. We need to make that distinction. So I would be highly suspect if someone comes in and they've got a revelation about the coming of the Lord. Just rest yourself in your understanding. We know about the coming of the Lord. We're going to be gathered to him. He's going to pour out his wrath. The Lord is going to reappear and establish his kingdom. We know how this is going to work. I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't know every granular detail of how that's going to happen, but I'm confident that that's the general testimony of the scripture. So I I rest in that, not in someone's spirit-inspired message. And if you find another book on the shelf, in the apocalyptic section of the bookstore or Amazon and they've got a new revelation about what's going on today and you say, but I know this teacher and he's been around a long time and he's reading the tea leaves of the government and what's going on in our society and he's, he's looking and showing us all of this as if to sell you some more books. Leave them on the shelf. Let Amazon keep them in their inventory. Trust what the Bible says. We know what's going on. We understand the coming of the Lord, the gathering of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the appearing of the Lord. I don't don't have to know all of what's going on in the secret halls of the CIA. Every time I hear that stuff, I think, well, that's settling. (laughs) Well, what if there's some conspiracy? So, what if there was? What are you going to do about it? You're going to trust the coming of the Lord. You're just going to trust that God is at work. You say, well, well, we might go through suffering. Okay. I'm not asking for it. I'm not wanting it. But is that going to change anything? There has to be some kind of clarity in your mind about that. So that the Spirit-inspired things that come out, the latest sermon, the latest book, or even a letter saying this is what comes from divine apostolic authority, if that was to come from us. Paul Paul says, don't be shaken. Even if you're inquisitive, don't be shaken. Don't be easily moved. Be the kind of person that, that takes all that stuff in stride and says, well, let's compare that with the details of what God says here. In fact, We're not just to do that personally. You know that the scripture says we're to help each other with that, right? For example, back in uh, the book of Ephesians, Paul reminds this church of their responsibility with each other. You remember that well. Known verse verse eleven, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Which, by the way, there's a Granville Sharp rule there, but I'm not going to go into it. (laughs) Pastors and teachers, but it's a sharp-like word. I shouldn't get into this. Why? Why does he give them? For the equipping of the saints. And what do the saints do? The work of ministry. What is the work of ministry? the building up of the body of Christ. You know what the work of ministry is? You and I, with each other, building each other up in the faith. How long do we do that? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Are We there yet? I don't think so. As a result, as a result of what? Of us building each other up until we have reached maturity. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching. The role that we have with each other is to instill as carefully and as constantly as we can to walk with each other. You see someone who's shaken and fearful, you come alongside to address what is shaking them, causing them to live on the edge of fear. And you say, no, the word is stable. The word is clear. We can trust what God has said here. Let's walk together in this. Let's unpack it together so that we're not tossed here and there so that we're stable. One of the greatest witnesses we will be to the world, to this world that is actually falling apart, they can't keep their marriages together, they can't keep their homes together, they can't keep society together, is if they see a community of people who are not bludgeoning each other over our eschatological differences, and we might have them. But we're stable. All faithful Christians know the Lord is coming back. The Lord is coming back. And he, he will right the ship. We know that. All faithful Orthodox believers know that is coming. That fact in and of itself should solidify us. So that no one is shaking. Just clarity about the coming of the Lord himself stabilizes us. Now, next week we'll start going into the next number of verses that unpack why it is that what goes on around us is not the wrath of God and what that is going to look like so that we never do misinterpret the present for something that is clearly marked for the future so that we live stable lives. We'll get more into that and then we'll eventually land on what are you doing with this? And how are you trusting the Lord in it? Let's pray together. Father, we we thank you again for what you reveal in the word of God to us. And we pray that we can be faithful. We pray that we can be helpful in unpacking what your word says, the way it is described to us so that we're a kind of people who are trusting you. You've revealed the scriptures. They're authoritative. They're sufficient. They're inspired by the Spirit. They have stood the test of time. We have nothing else to look to or to trust in. They lead us to Christ. Father, I pray for the souls of those who have not looked to you, those who are in this room who have not found you to be a savior who will save them from the penalty of sin and the coming judgment. Lord, I pray that you would show them there is coming a day in which they will stand before you. I pray you would help them to have faith now, to trust Christ and the sufficient work of satisfying your wrath on the cross because of the perfect life that Jesus lived. Lord, I pray you would arrest their soul and show them there can be a stable life. Christ has guaranteed it and promised it. There is a day coming when Jesus will return and we're looking to that day. We're hopeful of that day. Help us. We pray that you would strengthen us and you would make in us a stable people who don't live by fear, who don't look around at all the circumstances of life and get blown about by them but are stable, trusting in you and your purposes, knowing what you've shown us about even the end. Help us, we pray in Christ's name.